I get a little chuckle uh, in my mind when I uh, hear people, when I read myself uh, verses 26 and 27 of this chapter because it reminds me a little bit of um, Deputy Dog, you know, the uh, cartoon sheriff. Uh, he has trouble with uh, those varmints, musky and uh, vince, and uh, he's always telling them to get and stay got. And uh, when I read 26, I just read, Now an angel of the Lord told Philip, Get. Verse 7, so he got. So the passage has a lot to teach us about uh, mission, apart from cartoon characters. It defies a lot of things that we learn uh, in Bible college about mission strategy and church planting strategies because uh, what we find in this particular uh, passage is that there is a time and a place to, uh, to plan and strategize, and that's good, but there's a time and a place to not complicate things and to let God be the all-powerful, almighty. So Philip appears in Acts chapter 6 when um, about three years after Christ's death, and this story is about four years after Christ's death. We first find him in Acts 6 where he's uh, selected to be one of a number of people to start feeding the widows food because the disciples wanted to get on with their preaching. We know that Philip was one of those who fled Jerusalem with other believers to escape persecution following the uh, death of Stephen when he was stoned. We know from uh, elsewhere in the Gospels that uh, there was a lot of tension between Jews and Samaritans, but he went to Samaria and began preaching there, and he had a very effective ministry there in Samaria. We last hear of Philip in Acts chapter 21, and this is about 20 years later when Luke and Paul go to visit him in uh, Caesarea. We find that he's married now with four daughters, uh, but we hear no more of him. He disappears into history. So Philip is in Samaria in the midst of what we would today call a revival, if you like, and he's told to leave that flourishing ministry and go. And sometimes we're called to turn away from apparent success and to turn toward the unknown for reasons that we have yet to fully understand. Have you ever faced a similar choice like that? I know for me it was uh, when uh, I'd been asked to become a uh, media officer of a um, national political party, but at that time God had called my wife and I, Jill, to go to a uh, Christian missionary radio station in Asia to begin working there. My news editor, my media colleagues couldn't understand it. Uh, I was turning away, apparently, a promising career in media, a successful uh, career in journalism. To do what? To preach the gospel? Well, they didn't understand it. I couldn't explain it. And I think that um, it's difficult to explain obedience to God's call to people who do not believe in God anyway. But we do need to listen to the Spirit of God sometimes, who might say, go and do, and then add almost as an afterthought, uh, by the way, I'm not giving you any hint or any idea of what to expect. Just do what I'm asking you to do right now. So this is where we find Philip. About the Ethiopian, now, um, we don't know much about him. Uh, There's uh, commentaries and Bible scholars who say this and who say that. So as far as we can tell, anyone with a dark skin in those days was called an Ethiopian. We think he might have come from the area that we now know as Sudan, 
Um, was he a eunuch as we kind of understand it? Well, in those days, a eunuch was a title given to a very important person. We know that he was an official of the uh, Queen's Treasury. The Bible tells us that. Was he physically castrated or mutilated, as some uh, commentaries call it? We don't know. But we do know that he had converted to Judaism, and we do know that's why he'd gone to Jerusalem to worship. In verse 28... He's coming back, seated in his chariot. He's reading from the prophet Isaiah. And it was unusual, we know this, it was unusual for anyone in those days to have a portion of Scripture because Scripture was usually kept on scrolls in the temples. And so for him to have access to a written uh, copy of Scripture showed really a high degree of resourcefulness, a high degree of initiative and influence, And you'd need those in those days to get some scripture because the Bible Society hadn't been invented yet. So there was no Bible Society in uh, in Jerusalem to uh, go to to get the scripture. So that's Philip and the Ethiopian. So there are three things that we can uh, look at for our focus on mission this week. The first one is that Philip made himself available and he got an invitation. What did he get? An invitation. Say it again. An invitation. Excellent. That invitation led to communication. communication. And communication led to revelation. revelation. So, invitation. Communication. Brilliant. I might sit down, you've got it. So, verse 30, let's look at the invitation. Philip asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian invited Philip to get in and sit with him. So Philip appeared unexpectedly in a deserted place on a lonely lonely road. And what did he do? He rocked up to this guy and asked him a question. He saw a need. He saw a gap that needed to be filled. And he basically thought, I might be able to fill that need. I might be able to do something and satisfy what that man is looking for. He did that. He asked the question. And with that very simple act of making himself available, he was invited into the chariot. (laughs) Now, I'm sure that the Ethiopian's mum is just like my mum and your mum. I'm sure that the Ethiopian's mum said, don't talk to strangers in lonely places. I mean, what was he thinking? But clearly he must have seen something genuine in Philip, and that is why he invited him into his personal space, ignored what mum had said. Now, although Philip appears um, in this story about four years after Christ's death, what happened to Philip is entirely consistent with what Christ had been saying four years earlier. And we find that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Philip couldn't have done that because Matthew 5, verse 16 hadn't been written yet. But if he had, he would have been able to see that Jesus commanded uh, his disciples to let your light shine before others. And then Christ made this very bold claim, they will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I find the message uh, helpfully opens this up in the way that it, uh, it, it puts it. It says here, keep open house, be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. And through all the work that Health Communication Resources has done, that's been the very simple thing that we have tried to do, is to help local churches, local believers to become generous, open up their lives to the people around them, and allow God to work. So Philip made himself available, 
Philip Godan. Thank you very much at the front. Let's hear it from the back. People, Philip Godet. Wonderful. Let's go to chapter 34 and 35 to learn about communication. So the eunuch asked Philip, who's the prophet talking about? Philip began to speak and starting from this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So imagine Philip's situation. Here he was, no New Testament, no language which we need to have to uh, tell people and convert people today like justification and uh, sanctification, all those big words. You know, if you don't know those words, how can you be a Christian? Uh, Imagine, you know, that even, you know, horror of horrors, there was no Westminster Confession of Faith. How on earth, how on earth could Philip's do anything with this guy uh, who was rocking along? In a, uh, in a chariot. But Philip started with what he had, and that was this uh, portion of Isaiah on a scroll. But second was Philip's own experience. He had the evidence of what God could do in his own life. He had experienced it, he'd done it, he'd seen it. And we don't know if uh, Philip had ever seen Jesus heal people of, uh, of disease. We don't know if he'd ever seen him involved in uh, forgiving people of their sin. But Philip was performing miracles the day before he came across the Ethiopian. So he knew, he knew what God could do. I could give a lengthy lecture here on communication strategy and Christian mission, but let's be satisfied with a very simple thought, is that Philip is really following here a basic principle of communication in Christian mission, and that is start with what people know. It's not complicated. Jesus was doing it when he was using parables, uh, expressing spiritual truths in ways that people could understand with things that they could see around them. And uh, we find it later in the book of Acts in Acts 17 where Paul gives an extremely powerful demonstration of this and of contextualization of starting where people were at uh, with his uh, communication to people on the Mars Hill speech in Athens. So our first thought was invitation. The second thought is communication. So let's now look at revelation. Verse 35 and 36. So Philip began to speak and starting from the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. They came to some water and there had been sufficient revelation now for the Ethiopian to say, I get it. I want to go the next step and I want to be identified more. I want to be baptized. So let's think about this just a little bit. He was a Gentile converted to Judaism. He'd been to the holiest of uh, places of his religion, to uh, Jerusalem. And people I know have been to Israel and they've uh, come back thoroughly uplifted by the experience of going there. Uh, Walking through documented history, Christian history has uh, added great value and depth and fulfilment to their experience and understanding of their Christian faith. Well, the Ethiopian had gone there, but for some reason he was still a little puzzled, a little confused, a little uncertain. There was something that he still did not know. And you'd expect if he'd gone on a pilgrimage that he'd come back um, spiritually satisfied, I think, don't you? Wouldn't you expect that? In a way, I can understand it because my wife and I walked a part of the Camino de Santiago, the um, uh, St. James pilgrimage in Spain a few years ago. And uh, we were, um, well, we walked... 
we walked 110 kilometres, the last 110 kilometres, because if you only walk 100, if you walk less than 100 kilometres, you don't get the uh, the passport of a pilgrim. So uh, we're we're okay. Um, but we were walking, and we had really good moments of uh, spiritual. Um, uh, sensing that God was with us and uh, a sense of uh, God speaking to us in many ways as we were going. These were genuine experiences that we had. The people we met, the camaraderie, the whole thing was just wonderful as we walked on that uh, 100 kilometres. And so we came to the end of the pilgrimage with great expectations of what might happen there. We didn't intend to get involved in the, uh, the, the thing that was in the Catholic Church there with kissing the statue of... Uh, St. James and so on, but we did expect that there would be something more that God would, uh, would give to us. But when we got there, we were really disappointed because that spiritual became commercial. When we got there, we found that the pilgrimage turned into a marketplace. There were, you know, all sorts of souvenir shops for the pilgrims, all sorts of add-on tours that pilgrims could take to expand their uh, spiritual, you know, pilgrimage kind of thing, all sorts of uh, uh, places being advertised as this has been here for 500 years, every pilgrim should go here and drink the coffee from this place and so on and so forth, you know. It was a real marketplace and that put us off. So I don't know if this happened to the Ethiopian, but I can well imagine it because of our own experience. But another reason he might have been puzzled about biblical truth is because of the news of the day, because we know that it's likely that he was in Jerusalem within just a few months of Stephen having been stoned and of the persecution having happened. He would have been there a few months after all the uh, followers of Jesus had fled to escape the persecution. So let's just imagine, lift, lift, lift ourselves out of Jerusalem in those days and bring ourselves into Sydney of today. I mean, can you imagine if this was happening here? You know, this would be uh, controversy, there'd be sensation, there'd be persecution, stonings, a great time to be a journalist. Even I'd go back to being a journalist if all that was happening. That would be fantastic. And on Channel 7 Sunrise, Koshi would be, you know, giving his uh, spiel on how the economy would be ruined by all these Christians uh, selling everything that they had and giving them to the poor. What was that going to do to the federal budget? Um, ABC, Q&A, that have their progressive left guests and their political right guests, and just to prove that they were really balanced, that have an uneducated Christian fisherman. But let's go back to yesterday's Jerusalem. Certainly the Ethiopian must have heard enough discussion in the tea shops or the coffee bars or whatever it was that uh, he would have gone to for his refreshments and so on in those days. He would have heard discussion and he might have heard enough to stir those questions. What has this Jesus got to do with Old Testament prophecy? And in those two verses that we've just seen, we see here that Philip was able to reveal the answers to the Ethiopians' questions. And so we see the sequence. Philip made himself available and got an... The invitation led to... Communication led to... So let's apply these thoughts in a minute, but first a quick conclusion to the biblical record. So when they came out of the water, uh, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away and the Ethiopian went away rejoicing. 
So Philip was whisked away to a place about 40 kilometres distant to resume his preaching. In terms of mission and church growth, I mean, this is a little bit odd, don't you think? I mean, you know, we're sort of taught to take advantage of uh, what has been achieved and you'd expect Philip to say, hey, I'm going to hang around on this chariot and go back with you to uh, wherever you've came from and uh, maybe I can set up a discipleship centre, you know, the St Philip uh, Centre of Discipleship Training or something like that. Um, We don't know whether the... um, uh, Ethiopian went back, resigned his job and started a church or some kind of ministry, maybe a seminary. We don't know these things, but you'd think, you'd think that that would be smart church growth. You'd think that would be smart mission strategy. We don't know these things. We have got some stories about the Ethiopian, but they were written about a hundred years after the fact. And so we don't really know. The biblical record is silent. The Ethiopian disappeared into history. But there is one thing that we can be guaranteed of. The the Bible story does tell us something that is a perfect fact. The perfect fact is that the Ethiopian could not have been a Baptist. He could not have been a Baptist because he went away rejoicing. Now, I've got a right to tell that joke because I'm third-generation Baptist, folks. So let's assume that he was a Presbyterian. Shall we do that? He wasn't one of the chosen frozen. So what do we have here? We have a man set aside to serve food. He's forced to flee from persecution. He leaves a flourishing ministry. He goes to a deserted place because he was told to do so, and he leads a person to Christ. There's a lot in this story that we don't know. But what if the unknowns are a strength? What if the point of this entire story is about making us realise that we don't need to know everything. All we do need to know is get on with what we know and leave the rest to God. So this Mission Weekend, you're raising money for an excellent project in Kenya, the uh, peace-building radio station, uh, Amani FM. But let me tell you uh, just a a little story about... um, Uh, one of our experiences in HCR that illustrates this process of invitation, communication and revelation. Go back to 2005, Pakistan, earthquake, northeast Pakistan in a place called Kashmir, Azad Kashmir. The official death toll is over 87,000. Epping, you've got 23,000 people living in Epping. Can you imagine four times the size of Epping dead within just a few minutes? Four times the size of Epping's population. Gone. Just like that. 138,000 people disabled, injured, over 3 million people homeless. So I was contacted by an international uh, health communication group. Uh, I was introduced to some Pakistani organisations and they agreed to uh, a radio programming intervention that would provide education and information to the people in this particular area. Uh, there was a, uh, a commercial radio network that agreed to run the program, and so we agreed that we would have uh, we would buy airtime uh, for one hour a week that was dedicated especially to the response, and we would be mobilising service providers, uh, whatever community members were able to become involved in some of the programming. So the question for me was once they had agreed to this, and the question for them was, well, who's going to do this? Who's going to do the programming? Well, because I'd been living in Pakistan a few years before, I knew that hidden away in Rawalpindi 
was a Christian radio studio. They were hidden away because they needed to. If they were known to be producing the kind of radio programs they were, they'd be getting into a lot of trouble from the authorities. So they'd be producing programs, uh, record them, send them on the internet to external to radio stations that were outside of Pakistan. Those radio stations had powerful transmitters and they were broadcasting back into Pakistan. But these guys were hiding under the radar. They were just hiding away in a house uh, and uh, making these radio programs. They didn't want to be known. So I and a couple of other, excuse me, I and a couple of others went to speak to them. They agreed that they would release a person, and that person was Hazin, who you know about from uh, things that you've heard about uh, Pakistan that David and uh, Jan Bayliss have uh, spoken about. And so a couple of people and I began working with Hazin to develop this radio program. So can you imagine, here's Hazin at one point, you know, hiding away, saying, I'm not really here, making these Christian radio programs. He's now exposed and he's now meeting government officials. He's now meeting senior uh, leaders of na- uh, non-government organisations uh, to be producing a radio program for this uh, situation up in uh, northeast Pakistan. The program became respected for its advocacy for disabled people. It became uh, highly popular. Many people listened to it. The education uh, that it was giving was uh, greatly appreciated. Service providers were coming to them, asking for all kinds of assistance to help uh, them to uh, uh, help the, uh, the clients or the people that they needed to help the disabled and the injured and so on. But it really made its name when the radio program and Hazin was able to mobilise uh, leaders, uh, civic leaders as well as uh, religious leaders over something that was uh, not really uh, happy. In the earthquake, many men had lost their wives. Many families had teenage girls who the families couldn't afford to feed them, they uh, had nowhere to house them, and so a marketplace began for teenage girls to be given to these men to become their wives. And Hazin said, we can't allow this to happen. He went to the religious leaders and they agreed. They said, yeah, we can't allow this to happen. They went to the civic leaders and the civic leaders said, we really cannot allow this to happen. And so that radio program started this campaign and that whole movement, that whole activity stopped very, very quickly. So let me set the scene here before I go on. So here's a radio program responding to the needs of people traumatised, badly affected by an earthquake in Azad Kashmir, in independent Kashmir. And this is the part of Kashmir that's controlled by the Pakistanis. There's a border and the other part of Kashmir is controlled by India. Now you know how much the Pakistani government and the Indian government love each other over this line that separates the two Kashmirs. That's a joke in case you didn't get it. So this is high security country. There are secret agents everywhere. There's army everywhere. Islam is rigidly adhered to. Christians are very few, very few indeed. And poverty, social inequality is rampant. It's a very, very difficult place to be. So it's in this context that this radio program got started. Now, Hazin, after a couple of years, handed over that program to someone. And that man, who became the presenter of the radio program, was soon getting requests from his listeners 
to start praying for them in the name of Jesus, in the name of Isa, the Messiah, as they know him in the Quran. Live, on air, SMS, SMS message would come in. Please pray for me in my exams in the name of Jesus. Live, on air, in Pakistan. How did this happen? The man's name was Wilson. And if you're a person in Pakistan with a name that sounds like a European name, you've got to be a Christian. And that's how they identified him. They said, you've got to be a Christian. He began to get SMSs for, uh, from people who wanted to know more about the Bible. He got requests to be, uh, for people who wanted to read the Bible. He got requests to go to people's homes and pray for the sick people in their homes in the name of Jesus. And so here we have a Christian, I've got to chuckle, I mean this is just you know, mind-boggling. So here we have a Christian appearing on public radio uh, in Pakistan, uh, publicly uh, praying for people in the name of Jesus. So elsewhere in Pakistan, there were Christian organisations and churches who heard about this and they said, is this for real? Is this possible? And we said, certainly, come and have a listen. And so they asked us to help them and that's what we've been doing. So now there are other churches in Pakistan who are buying uh, airtime on local commercial FM radio stations and they're broadcasting programs that don't talk about Jesus in, in any way but they uh, talk about social issues and um, uh, try to uh, inject Christian values into society in such a way that uh, a couple of them have been praised by the managers of the radio stations that they buy, buy airtime from. And the managers are there to make money uh, from uh, people who buy airtime and for advertisers. But they've come to these Christians and have said, you're doing something wonderful for our country. And what you're doing is you're actually giving to people. We are taking away with our programming, but you are giving to society. Well, one church arranged a cricket tournament for the youth of the town and uh, they got sponsorship from Nestle, Milo making Nestle to run this cricket tournament. They were able to track down a uh, team member of the uh, Pakistan uh, cricket team and uh, he lived in the town. He came along as a chief guest and this cricket tournament for the youth of the town was a massive success, an absolutely massive event. There was publicity in the newspapers and uh, local television and uh, on other radio stations. And uh, you've got to understand this, that all around town, I didn't see it, but I'm told, all around town there were these um, banners that were uh, saying, you know, this tournament is on at such and such a time uh, and place. It's sponsored by Nestle, sponsored by this radio station and sponsored by the name of the church. You will never guess what the name of this church is. But if you were in Pakistan and had to come up with the name of a church, what would it be, knowing the situation there, knowing how Christians are regarded? What would you consider to be a good name for a church in Pakistan? It might be something really innocuous, such as gathering of believers, or um, people who follow the way, or uh, community fellowship. But not this church. The name of this church is the Way of Jesus Kingdom Church in Pakistan. The Way of Jesus Kingdom Church, promoted, made visible all around that particular city. But what we found is that in these places, the churches and Christians who are involved in these new radio programs sense a tolerance that they have not known uh, previously. So what will happen in the future, we don't know. But we do know that what has happened to the present day is simply that we've followed a process 
of letting God be in charge of the invitation, of letting God be in charge of the communication, and of letting God be in charge of the revelation. So as we come to a close, let's consider how this might apply to uh, us here in Australia. Greg Sheridan is the foreign editor of the Australian newspaper, and he recently wrote an article titled, Is God Dead? This is what he writes. At this moment in Australia, there is a perfect storm of social, historical, technological, educational and intellectual forces militating against belief in Christianity. A semi-official new religion, the new atheism, is slowly taking its place. Well, certainly as the same-sex marriage debate has shown, Christian beliefs are being challenged in this country. And yet we can be encouraged that apparently people are not turning their back on spiritual things. A survey by the McCrindle organisation, the Faith and Belief in Australia report of 2017, found that Australians are open to spiritual matters on one condition, on one condition. They found that the biggest attraction to people investigating spirituality is observing people who live out a genuine and authentic faith. They don't want words, they don't want preaching, they want to see action, they want to see people living out their lives with genuine and authentic faith. One of my favourite Christian rock bands is Switchfoot and uh, one of the the songs that uh, I particularly enjoy at the moment is the one, The World You Want, and some of the lyrics go like this, is this the world you want? You're making it. Every day you're alive. What you say is your religion. How you say it is your religion. Who you love is your religion. How you love is your religion. All your hatred, your religion. Is this the world you want? You change the world. And so Australians who are attracted by people who live out a genuine and authentic faith need to see Australians putting their faith into action. What does that look like for you? What does it look like for you? Mowing your neighbour's lawn while he's on holiday? Looking after your neighbour's kids while she's sick? How about inviting some refugees into your house for a meal? You've invited a Canadian into your church. Uh, You can invite somebody from Somalia into your house for a a meal. It might be the first time they've entered into an Australian uh, house and uh, been with an Australian family been with an Australian Christian family. So we've got any number of possible acts of good deeds, of generosity, of being available by opening up our house and being generous by being available. And so this is our mission challenge. Invitation, communication and revelation. It's getting on with what we know and leaving the rest to God. And it's our mission responsibility, not just our challenge. Wherever God calls us to work in our family, to our neighbours. Be available, be invited, communicate, reveal. It's really not that complicated. Amen.